I'm Anya, aka Strangely Literal. And I'm Alan. And this is Shadows and Shamblers. Please stand as you are able for this week's reading, which comes to us from the book Zariah Pollock, The Sister That Was Sleeping. You believe in nothing, so you have nothing. You are on the path from nothing to something. Now you may be seated. This week we watched American Gods Episode 3, Head Full of Snow. So what did you think? Uh, I think this is the best episode yet. It was fantastic. It, it pushes the boundaries out on the world. We get a better sense of how this world works, the kind of people who live in it, the way the gods work. I wish that we had been with Shadow and Wednesday more because that's our primary story, but everything that we got made it worth it to me to have that story move a little bit slower than I wanted. How about you? Yeah, I thought it was great. I'm glad that we're finally getting to the compassionate immigrant stories that we were promised. Um, (laughs) Right. And I really enjoyed the Shadow and the Wednesday character moments that we did get, so I kind of didn't mind the slower plotting. So before we get started, let's run through this week's creators, and oh wait, it's the exact same crew that we've had for every episode so far. So this episode was directed once again by David Slade, and in addition to the episodes of Hannibal that we mentioned previously, he's also directed one episode of Breaking Bad and Twilight Eclipse, which is the third movie in that franchise. Team Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what to say to that. I mean, (laughs) I guess he's the lesser of two evils. I'll give you that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Again, this episode is co-written by showrunners Brian Fuller and Michael Green. Um, And an interesting production note, this episode was actually made by stitching together footage that was originally planned to be two episodes, episodes three and four. So there's a bunch of stuff that got cut. We don't really know what that footage is, but maybe we can speculate at the end. Mm, Yeah. Let's uh, recap what happened this week. Somewhere in America, Anubis claims the spirit of Mrs. Fadil. Meanwhile, Mr. Wednesday reveals to Zoria Vecinaya that he will start a war. Shadow meets Zoria Polonochnia, who gives him the gift of the moon. He challenges Chernabog to a rematch and manages to defeat him. The god of evil will join them but at the end of their quest, he will hit Shadow with his hammer. Mad Sweeney wakes to a shotgun in his face and discovers he mistakenly gave his lucky coin to Shadow. In New York, Selim meets the Jinn, shares an evening of comfort and sex, then discovers a new path for his life. Meanwhile, Shadow concentrates on snow and a blizzard breaks over Chicago. Mad Sweeney catches up to Shadow and demands the return of his coin, but learns it was left on Laura's grave. Mr. Wednesday scams a bank out of its nightly deposits and confronts Shadow with the possibility that he can achieve anything. Later, Mad Sweeney unearths an empty casket and Shadow returns to his hotel to find Laura waiting patiently. 
So I want to start out today by talking about our compassionate immigrant stories that we're finally getting the two vignettes about Muslim or Arab immigrants that we get to see. And I really wish that we had seen this episode before we talked about last episode. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. But in a way, you, I mean... Do you have the crow at least, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, apologies to Brian Fuller and Michael Green. Uh, totally. Yeah. Okay. They're here. The stories are here. So one of the things that I really loved about this opening vignette is just how much beautiful detail there is and going back and rewatching it the second time you can see how carefully crafted and put together it is so that opening shot where it sort of dives through the roof of the apartment building in queens it Mm. happens so fast you'll notice it's a really great representation of the melting pot so you see some hasidic jews uh and then the black people family that gets mentioned later oh right yeah. yeah, so I didn't even notice that the first time, but go that line that Mrs. Fadil said stuck with me so much that then when I was watching it the second time, I noticed it. Oh yeah, that's the Black people family that she was referring to. And I love to, the second time through when you're watching it, you see the moment where she dies. And when you're watching it the first time, the way the camera is lingering on the stool and it's tipping... You think it's basically just there to provide suspense. But then watching it the second time, you see, oh, no, wait, that's where the stool actually does fall and she ends up dying. And you see the broken jar on the floor later next to her body. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, it's really cool. That's awesome. So what did you think about Mrs. Fadil as a character and the portrait of how she's painted? I love this. She's so great. The way that she is complaining about her eight grandchildren and uh, and cooking for them, and this is too good for them. I have a lot of thoughts about this, that she like stands at a remove from the rest of her family. And I feel like a part of that is this connection that she has with Anubis, that she that her faith gives her a slightly different identity than the rest of the family that she's a part of. Because she's not just Muslim, she also has this exposure to the Egyptian pantheon. Yeah, she's not connected to them completely. She has like a thorniness to her that is charming. And it seems to charm Anubis, like the way that Chris Obi plays him. He's smiling and he's very calm, like, hey, it's cool, you're dead, don't worry about it. But then when she says, you know, oh, they're going to name, it's going to be a shitty middle name. And he just has this smile, like, yep, it's going to be a shitty middle name. And he likes her. And it makes me like her. What about you? I loved it. I think she has some humility at her core. When Anubis is weighing her heart, she can name her faults. Like, it's not that she really thinks Mm. she's the be-all, end-all. Like, she's been carrying these things around her life. She knows what her flaws are. And she's not afraid to tell him and identify them. Totally. Yeah, she's she's so likable. It's so well-written. And I don't think that this ever happens in the book. So this is an original creation, and I really appreciated the entire way that it was done. When I saw it the second time, I thought... At the very end, 
she gets to the doorway and you see like this cosmos out there on the other side of the door and she turns Mm -hmm. around and she says should i really do this i want to see my grandmother again and i wondered if maybe anubis who and we can talk about anubis a little bit if you want to but anubis is associated with a jackal and that's kind of like a scavenger and Uh i felt like maybe he was like picking up some spiritual scraps and feeding on her like maybe he doesn't really have a claim on her like he says he does even though she did believe at some point maybe another god should have gotten her but he snapped her up to survive oh that's interesting uh before i speculate on that just what is anubis's deal like i don't know anything about his mythology anubis is the guy who does exactly what he does in this episode. He takes you to the underworld. He weighs your heart against a feather. Like All of that is just straight out of what is actually Egyptian folklore. And we talked about this a little bit last time. He's a folklore character. He's somebody that the common people would have been worried about. They wouldn't have been worried about Osiris because that's really just another lord. They would have been worried about Anubis, you know, who's going to be the guy that's going to actually judge you. So. Uh, the only thing maybe that's weird about him and was not in the show is that he has the body of a man and the head of a dog, uh, of a jackal, actually. I'm glad they made the decision not to do that. I'm glad we just got to look at Chris Obi's <laughs> face instead because it's totally. much better, I think, than any CGI they could have done. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see pushing her into the abyss as predatory at all. I saw him as more of a helpful shepherd to people who've died. And maybe it's just because I was thinking about Brian Fuller and comparisons to Dead Like Me and seeing him as kind of a grim reaper. But I thought I interpreted it as she asked him to choose for her. And so that's what he was doing. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's any it doesn't feel malicious. It was just that second time I was like, hmm, you know, only because I had seen the other two. If this one was the first one that we saw. I wouldn't have thought that at all. Yeah, I guess I wasn't really drawing the connection between the other prologues and this prologue. Because we've had, well, the only other somewhere in America scene that we've had is Bilquis, and she's also preying on people to gain power. But for some reason, I didn't see that here. We'll have to see. I thought it was really interesting that Anubis is also able to see into the future a little bit, just like Mr. Nancy was last episode. He tells Mrs. Fadil the things that are going to happen with her children and her grandchildren. I mean, it's sort of not on the same scale as Mr. Nancy being able to foretell 300 plus years of slavery, but Mm -hmm. it's another data point for us to consider. Yeah, and I wonder if it has anything to do with the connection between them in that moment. Like, maybe he can't do this for anyone that he meets, but because he's taking her on the journey and he's has contact with her heart, maybe he can look into the future. It's also possible that it's all bullshit. Like, he yeah. could just be making it up. But he does seem to know specific names of people and details that she believes, at least. So I loved all that stuff. It was It is interesting. Yeah. Um, And it's a cool piece of world building that they do effortlessly, like a lot of stuff in this episode. What about the other uh, immigrant Muslim story that we get? What did you think of that one? I loved that one, too. I thought the acting was great in both 
I thought the characters in the second one were also super compelling. I loved the use of the Arabic subtitles. Oh, yeah. That's so cool. Takes up the whole bottom of the screen and you get the beautiful Arabic script. I cannot read Arabic, but it's beautiful to look at. I love it as a reminder that language is so rich and specific and nuanced that by translating it, we are kind of losing something that the English is just an interpretation. Totally. What do you think about the... uh the actual motion of the stories like we're talking about compassionate these are two guys who are living in some pretty humiliating circumstances what do you think about that this depiction of economic hardship and how it reflects on masculinity is actually one of my more sensitive themes in literature like reading death of a salesman in high school was the worst for me I think part of that comes from the fact that my dad was laid off at a couple points while we were growing up. I guess I'm just really familiar with how men can really take that personally and as an attack on their masculinity and self-worth and sense of self. And it's just so, like, it tugs at my heartstrings. I am... yeah, it was really sad. It was and like kind of hard to watch, but in a good way. You can feel like the both of these guys are just so vulnerable in the yeah. conversation that they have. Like he's been wanting to talk to someone, you can tell. And we get this sense in his story when he's telling the jinn about uh, what it was like for him back in the homeland that he says his brother hates him. And then later on, we get the scene of gay sex, and you can draw that connection that he's not welcome in his homeland because he's homosexual. Oh, I wasn't even thinking about that, but that's so true. I didn't read anything gay into their interaction until he told him his room number. When he was touching his shoulder in the cab... I honestly was like just interpreting that as reaching out for some sort of human connection in the brutal, terrible world. And then going back the second time, I was just like, oh, I can't believe I missed that. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I think it should be fine for men to touch each other like that in a non-romantic way. But I don't know. I think it's both. (laughs) Yeah. I think it can be both. And we've seen the djinn before. I don't know if you remember when we get the glance of him. Oh, was it in one of Shadow's dreams? So Shadow goes to the store and the TVs start talking to him. And then he goes to the diner to confront Wednesday about it. When he walks in, Wednesday is having lunch with somebody. They get up, that person leaves, and you see he pushes up his glasses and the the fireballs of his eyeballs are there. And he walks out, and it's the djinn yes. who walks past yes. him. Yes, I knew I had seen him before, but I had forgotten the context. It makes me wonder when this scene with Salim happens. Is it before this happens, or is it after? Like, he's not a cab driver anymore, so does he move on? Or I'm also confused what exactly happens in the end of this, like, let's... <laughs> well, okay, yeah. No, I had some questions about that, too. Because it looks like the act of sex has transferred the power of the djinn into Salim somehow. We, like, see it happening in the sort of alternate plane, the fire, like, moving into his body and into his eyes. 
but then when he wakes up back in the real world, he doesn't actually have the fire in his eyes anymore. And was that his face on the ID card? I couldn't tell because I'm just like really bad with faces and there was no. no beard on that. So that wasn't him? It's not either of them. I see. Okay. So this scene is faithfully adapted from the book for the most part. And it's, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty late in the book. Um, it's not in this part at all. But in the book, he makes a point of saying, the narrator does, that the the picture is not of either of them, and it's not either of their names, but to Americans, they all look the same, so it doesn't matter. I see. But is he the djinn? I don't know. <laughs> what I wanted to happen was I wanted it to mystically be his picture that had like just appeared on the cards mm. to have it be some sort of magic. And so that's what I was looking for. And then when it didn't look like his face, I was just really confused about what's going on. But I, I like what you're saying about how the country sees them as interchangeable. And so they're just kind of rolling with that, even though it's kind of sad. It's Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> it's the worst. I don't know. I don't know if he's the djinn or not. I guess maybe if we see the djinn again, we'll know. Can you talk a little bit about the djinn? Because again, I just don't have any background in the mythology. I'm going to assume that most people listening to us are familiar with the book of Genesis uh, from the Torah or the Old Testament of the Bible. The story of Adam is that he um, is created from the dust of the earth. So you can imagine God kind of making a human form out of dirt or mud, and then he breathes life into it. And it becomes the human being, Adam, right? Like, we've all heard this story. In the Islamic tradition, there is another group of people who are created the same way, but they are created from fire instead of dirt. So this is just kind of an amped up version of that. It's a little bit more complicated. If I mean, if somebody's listening to me and they are Islamic or are familiar with those traditions, like, I understand that it's very complicated, and I am not representing how complicated it is in my explanation, but that is basically the difference between a human being and a jinn. The way that they depict this is not consistent with Islamic tradition, you know, like burning eyeballs and stuff, but it looks really cool, and it, it makes a, a decent story. According to the show, they're believed to have the power to grant wishes, but they don't really. So I think what he's referring to is from... It's um, from A Thousand and One Nights. You're, you're talking about a genie, basically. This is Aladdin and the genie. Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess, oh, the, the words are even kind of similar. Is that where the word genie comes from? Jin, genie? Yes. It's, it's, just, it's just white people who can't say foreign words. It's taking gotcha. a foreign word and saying genie. And, it, and it's, it should have more of a D sound at the beginning of it, but it's a conflated D and J. We don't have the right consonants to say it in English. So, okay. and, they, and there is like a, an inflected vowel at the end that you say in the back of your throat. You know, Arabic is very complicated, beautiful, lyrical language, and, uh, and our mouths are not made for it. <laughs> so... We are not trained to speak that way. So we say um, genie. Sorry, the biologist in me is going to have to say, it's not that our mouths aren't made for it. It's that- You're right. You're right. We haven't learned how to move our mouths that way. We're all the same. Yeah. <laughs> we just learn differently. Yeah. So he's talking about genies. He's saying, you know, all the people in America 
think that we grant wishes. Um, I do think it's interesting how the fate of Salim and Mrs. Fadil affects their story, their interaction with the gods that they encounter. Even though we know that this episode was kind of chopped up and put together, I do think that this theme of identity and faith ties the entire story together, along with Shadow's story uh, and these vignettes that we get that expand the world. When Shadow wakes up and he goes on the roof and he talks with the youngest of the Zariah sisters that I will not say the name of. Midnight Star. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> and she's she's stargazing. You you said the quote, she, she says, you believe in nothing, so you have nothing. And that affects that faith that Shadow has or that he lacks affects his power. It affects the way that he interacts with the gods. Wednesday tells him that that's the nature of Americans, that they pretend and that Shadow is pretending that you cannot believe in impossible things, even though he can believe in impossible things, right? We all have that ability. That's what stories are, is we believe in something that's not real. Just like you said with uh, Death of a Salesman, that's something that didn't happen, that was being depicted by people who you know weren't really in that situation but you still felt something so it was real for you because you believed in it but in some way i feel like shadow's background as a manipulator of coins factors into his unwillingness to believe in impossible things right he believes that things can look impossible but he thinks there's always some rational logical explanation behind it Right, he's looking for the uh, misdirection. Exactly. Yeah, that that hides the objective truth. And he feels like Wednesday's fucking with him, right? That yeah. he's like, did I create snow or did I not? And Wednesday won't answer the question. He's, he says, well, if you believe that, then you get to believe that you can do impossible things. And he just looks at him like, <laughs> answer the question, man. But this is about faith. and it's And that faith affects who you are. Like I said earlier with Mrs. Fadil, I feel like her faith separated her from her family on a certain level. And Salim's faith allows him to transform his identity literally into a different person. He's no longer that man who has to try and sell shit to people who don't want it. He gets to drive a car and command his own destiny. And Shadow becomes a different person in this episode. At one point, he answers the phone, and he's a different man. He's the head of the security company. And he does things when he's talking to that policeman that Wednesday didn't tell him to do. Yeah, I love I love how his improvisation is used as a way to show us how clever and creative Shadow can really be. I think part of that is because he is believing in the identity, you know, just the name. And, and Wednesday didn't even give him a full name. He just gave him an initial. And then when he answers the phone, he says, yeah, this is Andy Haddock. What can I do for you? So he created that persona. He becomes that person. And then he makes that work just like he does with the snow, right? He zones out. He's not there anymore. And he manifests the snow by investing his belief in it. And it changes the world. Yeah. Well, I think fitting this episode into what we've seen before... In episode one, Shadow agrees to go with Wednesday because he has no better options. 
He doesn't really believe Wednesday. He's kind of just playing along. And then in Mm -hmm. episode two, I think Shadow really comes to terms with Wednesday's power and starts to believe that Wednesday has some sort of supernatural powers. And now in episode three, he's starting to believe that he actually can have some sort of supernatural power. I think it scares the shit out of him. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think he's ready. He, uh... Do you think that Shadow creating the snowstorm comes just from within him? Or is Wednesday sort of like harnessing Shadow? Is it some sort of something to do with their interaction? Because obviously, if every human on Earth could affect the weather like that, like it would be chaos. <laughs> is it is it something <laughs> about Wednesday unlocking that in him? Or is it maybe actually becoming aware that there is this whole level of extra supernatural stuff going on that unlocks that power for him i think in the um in the scene where they're in the car and they have stopped because of the wolf in the road wednesday says to him that it's what you believe in and it's the company you keep and shadow looks at him and says questionable company and he says well you've always had that um so I think there is a part of it that has to do with Wednesday being there. And when they're in Chicago, it seems like Wednesday makes it rain, right? When he's outside with Vetch and Yaya. Yeah. Um, And she says, I taste you on the rain. Uh, Like, I would think that Wednesday would want it to snow, but he can't. He's not powerful enough. He's not potent enough. I see. And so Shadow's giving him that kick. It's the combination of Wednesday unlocking the power of Shadow's belief or wednesday unlocking shadow's power yeah or maybe the two of them cooperating yeah like you're suggesting uh he's kind of guiding him right he said think of snow so it's like a guided meditation i feel like shadow does not value himself on some level like he does not believe that he's capable of great things and so that's part of his denial in my opinion of what Wednesday is trying to tell him. Do you see anything like that in the story? I don't think that there's like a ton of evidence for it, but I, I read it in the way that Ricky Whittle is playing Shadow, that he doesn't have confidence in himself on some level. I mean, I think being in prison for three years would do a number on anybody's confidence, right? I mean, obviously, whatever he did to get landed in prison... He did it thinking that he wouldn't get caught, and then he did get caught. So Mm. that'll make you humble (laughs) and cautious about overreaching your own abilities. And he doesn't believe in himself as like a a magician, I guess. Like he doesn't argue with Wednesday when he says you don't have what it takes to be a magician. He just doesn't seem to have a lot of confidence in general to me. But I think the point about the magician is more subtle than that, because... It's not that you need confidence to be a magician. It's that you have to have, I think the, f- the word they use is personality, but you have to be a little bit of a con man and just kind of like slick and suave. And that's not really shadow. Oh, fair enough. That's true. There's lots of different kinds of confidence. It's something I want to keep in the back of my mind going forward as I watch what Ricky Whittle is doing with shadow Ricky Whittle is so charming and amazing. He won me over completely in this episode. I love when he's, 
he gives him the hot chocolate and he's like, do you like marshmallows? And he, he just is complaining to Wednesday. And then he finally admits like, yeah, I like marshmallows. Yeah. yeah I like marshmallows. <laughs> it's so good. Um, um, so also in the last episode, you mentioned that we hadn't seen any of the big players. No Jesus, no Allah, none of the monotheistic gods. But the hilarious conversation between Wednesday and Shadow in this episode sets us up to think that, like, yes, Jesus does exist in this world (laughs) as the kind of god that you could run into. Or or some version of him, right? Yeah. He gives quite a list of Jesuses, and it seems like Shadow interrupts him. There could have been even more Jesuses than we than we're introduced to. Uh, I love that part. I loved Ian McShane's delivery on the line. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of need for Jesus. So there's a lot of Jesus. (laughs) Also, apparently Ian McShane is British. Oh yeah. I like just found that out. His American accent is so flawless. I had no idea. Well, I don't know if you know this, but Ian McShane is perfect and everything about him is wonderful. (laughs) Of course. So, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I should have known that would be your response to that. Right. I love the depiction of him here with Morning Star, we'll call her, because we know that he's a ladies' man, but up until this point, we've only seen him seducing sort of like nameless, young, attractive women. Mm-hmm. And now we can see that he's equally seductive with older women. It's not. He's uh he's not a shallow ladies man. He's an equal opportunity ladies man. I love the two of them. When he walks in there with that cup of coffee and she's like, "You need to go to bed." And he's like, "I'm trying to." Yeah. It's they're so adorable. Well, and I love as much as it gets really irritating to have young women over sexualized and objectified on shows. It's like kind of refreshing to see an older woman objectified and sexualized on a show like that because older women are usually not portrayed as like sexual agents or objects right uh, as not even being worthy or desirable at all yeah i do wonder do you think it's totally sexual or do you think that there is some kind of like he he wants knowledge from her and also does he want any of her power or any of uh he's trying to build some kind of coalition do you think this is part of that to get her loyalty? He's tapping on an old romance between them, possibly? I don't know if they necessarily were involved in the past. And I don't think their relationship is just sexual. Like, I mean, clearly there's more at stake than that. And their relationship is much more complicated. But I do think the the sexual aspect is totally there. And I kind of love it. It's very charming. But yeah, so back to Jesus. Um... <laughs> putting you on the spot with a prediction do you think that we'll run into one of the many jesuses at some point during the show uh yeah yeah i think so i know in the book well there are multiple versions of the book but in the author's preferred text yeah there is a scene with jesus that is taken out of the book so this is not a spoiler it's in the afterword and neil gaiman calls it an apocryphal scene that did not happen but uh shadow and jesus have a conversation it's possible that this will get adapted into the show oh cool i think it's likely yeah it's just too too good of a i love this conversation um 
And it also indicates a little bit of world building, right? I don't think Shadow's buying this. I think he believes that Wednesday is being an asshole. But I think that it's talking over his head to the audience and indicating to us that the gods that we're meeting are not necessarily the only gods in the world. Like, there could be another version of Mad Sweeney in Ireland. Yeah. Right? There's probably another Anubis, too, right? Mm-hmm. And, and on and on and on. And there are as many of those as there are different kinds of people to believe in them. So this is a piece of world building, uh, which is delightfully written and really well executed. Yeah. I think it also sheds a slightly different light on the relationship between humans and gods that gods exist because of human belief and human belief gives them power but also that the humans really are getting something out of it that the gods existence comes from some sort of need that they have and that it does fulfill a need for them yeah your tinkerbell theory yeah hypothesis yes hypothesis (laughs) not a theory we need more data but it also has like an element of economics to it right there's a demand, so there, you know, there needs to be a supply, and the supply increases with the demand. And that economic view really plays into the fact that the old gods are in such trouble now that they're having to compete with the new gods. Exactly. Yeah. So speaking of sex, how did you feel about Zoraya Polonochnia's virginity status? I kind of was giving it the side eye as it was happening is like and of course she has to be a virgin but it seemed like it meant enough that they bothered to put it in there but then it also ended up being basically inconsequential and so that kind of irritated me so last time we talked about neil gaiman adapting things and being stuck a little bit with the archetypes that are available Mm -hmm. in the case of this character, she is completely made up by Neil Gaiman. She doesn't exist in the mythology. The fact that she's a virgin and she has extra power from that. Oh, sh- and she's like, oh, Shadow, you have to kiss me so I know what kissing is like. Right. Ugh. It's no. not good. <laughs> and it was a pothole that they did not need to drive through. Yeah, they could have just left it out. I do like the line that she has right after it, that it's disgusting. But in a nice way, yeah. I like that. That's well written. But the whole thing, it's yeah, not worth no. it to get that line. Once again, we're tying a female character to sex and her power to sex. And uh, we all agree it's not good. Come on, writers. You can do better. Yeah. And that's like, that's one of those things that I'm more forgiving in a book that was published in the year 2000, because I feel like there was less critique of that kind of thing out in the open and in the culture but in 2017 it's like come on it's only a moment um it does diminish that character i wonder if we'll if we'll see her again yeah i i liked her performance everything else about that moment was really good i love the bear on the telescope that's a cool detail that was so cute i loved it too and i love too the the kinetics of how the telescope swings around when you first see her. Hmm. The uh, the aesthetic felt very Harry Potter in like a good way. That was another thing that I noticed on my second time through. But like, are they trying to make the fire escape as some sort of like mystical or symbolic object? Because 
there's not only the the disappearing fire escape that Shadow uses to get up onto the roof, but there's the fire escape in the prologue that Mrs. Fadil uses to get up to the sand dunes with Anubis. Oh, I just thought that was how big buildings are in Queens. That's not <laughs> that's not how it is. No. There's not a giant desert on top of New York. Oh. No, but I mean, I don't know. I feel like there is something kind of cool and transgressive about hanging out on a fire escape. You know, it's like you're not, it's supposed to be in case of emergency only. It looks so amazing when they're going up there. You see, like, they do the first shot of it, you know, where you just look up the building and the building looks infinitely tall. Yeah. And it makes me immediately think of Jacob's Ladder from the Old Testament and uh, just this infinite ladder going up into heaven that you have to climb it also ties like the regular material world very nicely to the to this more ethereal um, mythic world that's the aesthetic of american gods right there it's that neon mixed with the votive candles and and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. it was perfect so we need we need to talk about chernabog in this episode he's so gross and so weird. <laughs> we get that close up of his feet. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's how we we transition from the ethereal, beautiful virgin on the roof to Chernabog's uncut toenails covered in dirt. It's, it's great. I love it. So he challenges Chernabog um, to a second game of checkers. Yeah. This feels a little cheap to me. It's always felt cheap to me. It's in the book. It feels too easy of an out. He gets in this terrible situation that he's going to get knocked on the head with this mystic hammer. And then he just like, oh, I'll play the second game and uh, and I'll worm out of it. What do you think about it? Do you think it's a narrative cheat at all? I agree that it kind of feels like cheating because once he's already lost the first game he basically has nothing to lose for the second game, right? Like, there's nothing at stake. He's already gonna be hit in the head with his hammer. But Mm. I didn't feel cheated narratively because of it. Do you feel like this is a clever move on his part? Yeah. Does this demonstrate some of his capability? Yeah, and I feel like it comes across more clearly in the book because you can hear his internal monologue more, and Mm. you can hear that he's basically using the knowledge of Chernabog that he gained during the first game in order to beat him in the second game. And they try to convey that in the TV show with that one line that he says during the game. And we're cross-cutting, too, between two stories at that point. So it's it's difficult to follow. Because we're getting Wednesday and Vetchin Yaya Oh, yeah, outside. that's right. It didn't feel like a narrative cheat to me, at least when I was reading the book. And then I sort of knew it was coming for the TV show. What do you think about the way that they shifted it around so that he meets the sister before he plays the game? I didn't like that for one main reason, and it's that I think it really diminishes the role of Shadow's intellect and cleverness in winning the second game. So in addition to not being able to hear his internal monologue and how he's sort of outthinking Chernobog's moves, he wins the second game after getting the moon coin the protection from the midnight star sister and so i think in the tv show there's like a pretty clear interpretation that 
that he wins the game potentially because of this mystical protection that he's been granted and not just because of his own cleverness. And so I don't like that interpretation as much. Yeah, I could see that. I hadn't thought of that. I guess I'm so used to the book, I would just like took it for granted that this was going to happen. And I didn't really think about the implications of him getting the charm and then playing the game. Do you think the coin actually does anything for him, though? Like, at all? Or is this like Dumbo's feather? I don't interpret Shadow winning the second checkers game as being due to the good luck charm of the moon coin. But I think that's mostly because I've read the book and because of my preconceived notions going into the TV show. If I was just watching the TV show without that background, I would totally think that the moon charm had something to do with him winning. And because she says, you know, don't throw away your protection this time. Right. Yeah. What about him making the snow? Do you think he could have done that without the coin? Or does it give him more juice or something? Oh, I didn't interpret it as having any impact on the snow thing. Yeah. So the coin doesn't really matter in that case. No. I mean, she very specifically says protection. So I don't think the snow threatens his mortality in any way. Honestly, the only reason I think of that is because of Mad Sweeney losing his coin. And it like has a magical effect on him. And it clearly has a magical effect on Laura, who was dead. That's because he's a lucky leprechaun. That's I feel like that's a different thing. So it's kind of like the effect of his specific mythology affects the ability of the coin. And then in this case, the ability of the other coin is protection because that's what she says it is Yeah, exactly. from her uh, religion. Exactly. Yeah. The, Interesting. The coins are not just interchangeable. Okay. That's cool. I like that. The other thing about Chernabog here that I think is important and I want us to keep in mind going forward is that now Shadow has a death sentence over his head. And I think this is really important. We talked before in the first episode about the idea of Ragnarok. Did we? I don't remember. Who's Ragnarok? So Ragnarok is an apocalyptic event in Viking mythology where all of the gods will die in a terrible future. Now Shadow has a guarantee that he will die. No matter what he does throughout the rest of this story, Chernabog is going to hit him on the head with that hammer at the end of it. Like, Mr. Wednesday is very clear about this. He would rather be dead and remembered forever than to be alive and forgotten. Mm-hmm. Like, that is much worse for him. He he wants glory. Well, and that's why he's the perfect person to lead this war. I think the other gods don't maybe don't feel as strongly about it as he does. So they're willing to kind of just let themselves fade away. But he's not. He's the perfect person to push Shadow for that reason, too. Because Shadow doesn't want glory. He doesn't want anything, right? Or the things that he wants are so quiet and humble that for Mr. Wednesday, they're not worth living for. Yeah. And so to have that death pushing against Shadow, that constant reminder of his mortality, and that no matter what he does, there's no reason now for him to settle down and build a life because it's going to end. So now his actions are more urgent. Wait, his actions are... They're more urgent or less urgent? I think they're more urgent because now he has fewer possibilities. The opportunity to settle down, to have a family and a job, none of that's possible anymore. Because even if all of this somehow shakes out, and we don't really know what's going on exactly yet, but even if all of this shakes out so that Shadow survives, 
he's still not going to survive, right? Because he's going to have to confront Chernobog. It's like that saying that if nothing we do matters, then the only thing that matters is what we do. Exactly. And so he, he has to do things that will matter and not to him, right? Not, not to build his future, but to the world. Yeah. The only thing he has left is glory. Glory and being able to make significant differences and changes in the world. And that is the idea of Ragnarok in Viking religion. That's the point of it, is to make you live your life differently so that you seek glory and fame with your life. You don't seek an easy farmer's life. You want to go out there and conquer. And so now Chernobog is Shadow's personal Ragnarok. That hammer is literally over his head for the rest of the story. And I think that's really important and something that we need to keep an eye on. Oh, I really like that. It's pretty cool. It's like a really good writer made this story. It is like that. Okay, so to wrap things up, now it's time to highlight one way that we think the show failed to live up to the book and one way that we think the show surpassed the book. So, Alan, what was your biggest disappointment? This is really a nitpick because we built this segment and I need to pick something. So I'm going to say that Shadow and Wednesday's story has just moved to an absolute crawl. They start in Chicago. They end in Chicago. I think we don't even get maybe half of the episode about Shadow. So that's my complaint. We, I'm not super disappointed with it. How about you? What was your disappointment? Yeah, I also had to sit and think really hard to come up with anything to complain about in this episode. <laughs> um, and the thing that I came up with is actually is what I said before about how it's heavily implied, I think, that Shadow winning the second Trekkers game has something to do with the protection from Midnight Star. Yeah, and that you know, I hadn't even thought of that. I love that you pointed it out. Because I think that's that is totally there. And as a book reader, I just took it so for granted. I didn't even notice the subtlety of the change, but it's it's totally there. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. Yeah, and because when you're watching the episode, it's literally like the next scene. She hands him the coin and says, "This is for your protection," and then he immediately goes and confronts Chernabog. Um. So, what was your favorite improvement? Once again, it's the advantage of this medium is the visuals, the look on people's faces. That's I'm always going to be a sucker for that, especially if there's no dialogue. I love like the silent movie treatment. We get this moment with Salim where he reaches through the cab partition uh, while the djinn is sleeping. And his hand, if you go back and rewatch that scene, his hand hovers and shudders before he touches him. It's just this intimate moment of human contact the first time i watched it i teared up immediately and uh and then that's the moment that he sees the jinn's eyes and then after he has accepted who the jinn is he reaches out again and touches him and the jinn touches his hand and then we cut to the desert and the sound of sand sliding over sand and it's just so beautiful and so well done it just like it broke my heart it touched me it's so human and wonderful and beautiful i just love it what about you my favorite thing that they were able to do because it was a tv show was the way that they interwove the 
scene of Mad Sweeney digging up Laura's grave and Shadow heading back to his hotel room to find Laura waiting. I think that's something Mm. that is a lot harder to do in a book, just sort of like be jumping perspective willy-nilly back and forth like that. I thought it was really effective as a way of building tension and foreshadowing what Shadow was going to find when he went back to his hotel room. I think it gives us a little bit of dramatic irony versus the knowledge that Shadow has. Yeah. You know, where we see the coin burned through the lid of the coffin and he doesn't understand what's happening. Yeah. And I think in particular, the choice that they made to have Laura come visit him at this hotel room, as opposed to in the book, she visits him in the hotel in Eagle Point, right? I'm, I'm remembering that correctly. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, you're totally right. And I think it's a much stronger decision to wait to have that confrontation between Shadow and Laura because... Um, yeah. Because that confrontation is really going to pay off in episode four. And I think it's more powerful for the TV audience to not have that loose Laura thread hanging out as we're sort of going through all of the Chicago and the Star Sisters and Chernabog and Checkers and just be really focused on that and then wait to find out about Laura until we're ready to do the deep dive and really figure out what's going on with Laura. That is completely fantastic. And I love everything you said. (laughs) It was great. Awesome. I agree with everything. Okay, well, I think that wraps us up for this episode. I'm Anya, aka Strangely Literal, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal, that's Strangely, and then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chipper Allen. You can follow the show on Twitter at Shadow Shambler and visit our website at shadowsandshamblers.com for news and episode reviews. If you'd like to leave us feedback, if maybe we've scared you by forgetting something, you can visit shadowsandshamblers.com contact or send an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com. Come join us next week for episode four, Get Gone, and use the hashtag shamblers live tweet with us on sunday night and don't forget to rate and review us on itunes if you don't it will make your heart heavy and we'll know that when we pull it out of your chest and weigh it shadow and shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a creative commons non-commercial Share a like license. <laughs> Zoria Polonuchka. No, shit. Zoria. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. And he's the perfect he's the perfect push he's the perfect person. Um and Zoria Polonuch fuck. Polon- <laughs> uh. <laughs> this is gonna be a long outtake reel. Five minutes of us trying to say Varia Polonuch guy. What are we saying her name is? The Midnight uh, Zoria Pol- Polonuchnia. Polonuchnia. Yeah, Polonuchnia. that one. Uh, <laughs> let me... Shadow meets 
Zoria pulling the- <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> but now that we've started that, I just want to go on record and saying that I can say Zoria pulling no- Shit, fuck. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs>